Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Before the news cycle completely moves on, I wanted to take a minute to talk about polls. So we've heard a lot about how wrong the polls were this time and how did everybody think that, you know, Biden was going to win in this landslide and we were going to keep the House and we were going to pick up all these seats. Um, And then the poll, well, the polls told us all that and then it didn't happen. So why? But like the polls are, uh, are pollsters and the polls in general, I think, are a very easy target to blame um, for a variety of things. But I wanted to bring on my former pollster, Drew Lieberman, um, with Strategies 360. He is a phenomenal pollster, worked with me on my race. He's worked with me for her time on the pack. He's the senior VP at Strategies 360 running their national research and has worked with candidates up and down the ballot at every level of elected office based in California. Um, but he correctly predicted my victory, uh, go figure, in 2018 and did it with a, a degree of precision um, that was impressive, especially when other polls had us down. So wanted to get his thoughts on what is the deal as a pollster? What's the future of polling? How much should people count on this stuff? Should we stop thinking about it altogether? Um, what did and didn't happen this cycle, how the polls are going to affect what we run in the future and, um, everything like that. So, you know, I hope you enjoy this conversation with him. So enjoy. Hello, Drew. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Um, for having me. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to do this episode because, I literally was figuring we'd call it something like in defense of polling, because I think that the, uh, you know, two, two presidential elections in a row that were really off and um, everything like right now in DC, talking to members, former members, you know, people who've been in these tough races, people in leadership, they're all saying that it was the polls, right? Like the reason we didn't see the house coming or that, you know, the house potential losses coming, everybody was, you know, thinking that our map our, you know, our battleground map was really big is because the polls seemed so positive. Like I was talking to one earlier who said that her numbers had her up um, like at least six points. One had her up like 10 to 15 points. And then um, sure enough, her race was like super, super tight. So she was giving money away. Like she was, she was helping other members whose races seemed tougher because everyone thought that hers was so in the clear. So um yeah, so what happened? And and do you think polling is, uh, you know, obsolete? And I think the answer is no, because that would mean your job is obsolete. <laughs> uh, you start off by saying we were going to call this in defensive polling, and then you start me off with a hardball. No, I, I think that's a, I mean, look, that's an important question, actually one of the more difficult ones to answer. I guess I'd back up and say, I mean, we probably should start from a standpoint of like trying to understand the conversation that we are having and the one that maybe we should be having at this moment, right? And uh, I think this is a really important discussion for us to, to begin. Um, but I gotta, we wanna be really careful of, uh, of going too far right now because uh, the truth is we don't have all of the information uh, we need to really actually understand this. And I, I think the only thing that would be worse than not learning any lessons from what happened in 2020 would be learning the wrong lessons or learning some sort of incomplete lesson you referenced 26 was there something that we did on that front that we learned what we thought were lessons from 2016 and then overcorrected in some way for 20 i think that's a yeah i I absolutely i think there's a lot in that question uh so the first part of it is yes absolutely right i mean we walked away from 2016 with a fairly simplistic answer of like okay we don't have enough 
non-college voters in our polls, you can correct for that demographically. Let's do that. And therefore, problem solved. That's the lesson that most people walked away from 2016 having learned. Uh, I think most pollsters also corrected for that uh, this election cycle. Uh, and it clearly did not solve the problem or it certainly didn't solve the entire problem. I mean, it's possible right. the problem could have been worse uh, if we hadn't made that adjustment. So it was probably an important thing to learn, uh, but it clearly didn't tell the entire story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we really, I mean, you know, there are a couple things going on here, right? One is uh, we haven't finished counting votes yet. And right. so to even sort of say how wrong or right the polls were at this point is, is not entirely clear. Now we're getting pretty close to having an understanding of what this miss looks like. And I'm not going to come on your, on your podcast. And uh, I certainly don't want to sound like a not denier that there were, there was error this year and it manifested yeah. itself in different ways, you know, and there's, uh, as you sort of started out this conversation asking, you know, there's, there was a difference between the top of the ticket and down ballot. Uh, there's some regionality to it. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that we have to consider this. Um, but I do think it's really important to like, actually, well, first we have to, you know, get the information, right? We can't, we can't actually come to any sort of conclusion either about how wrong the polls actually were or what to do about it until, uh, we, until we really know what the story is. So we don't have all the answers right now, but we do have a few things, right? Uh, we have some fraction of the information that we need to start to make these decisions. So we can start to sort of uh, think about it. Uh, and I guess that's the second thing that we have is some theories as to what may have happened and what could have been uh, either different then or than 2016 or, uh, or what we need to account for that we didn't account for in addition to what we learned coming out of the last presidential election. Um, at the same time, you know, we've got this like almost <laughs> bloodthirsty demand for answers right away. Yeah. And again, you know, that sort of brings us back to this. We're in this bad situation right now where everybody's looking for answers. Everybody's trying to figure out what just happened in this election. Uh, the polls are part of that conversation to try to answer it based on polling right now, I think could lead us down a path that we don't want to go down. And frankly, a path that could be wrong uh, and put us in a bad position going forward. So, so is your, is your message right now? Like, okay, everybody, yes, there's an issue, but like, hang on a second, we got to figure this out. Yeah. I think what I would, I would describe the situation that we're in right now is uh, what is required is some degree of accountability from pollsters and to figure out what happened. Cause no, nobody can sit here and say, yeah, the polling was great. Everything was right on. Um, and what's also required is some reimagining of the way that we both conduct and use polling. And I think those are two really important things uh, for actually solving this problem, quote unquote problem, going forward, right? We have to figure out what can we do better so that we don't have these types of misses or that we can, uh, that we can make the numbers as close as they can possibly be. Uh, the second one is, you know, we have to... Uh, we, we have to sort of re-examine the coupling of the sort of pollster journalism complex. And, oh, what do you uh, mean by that? Well, I think what I mean is uh, there is a long relationship between pollsters and the media, right? I mean, this, is, uh, this drives a lot of the conversation. It helps, uh, it helps reporters figure out what they want to cover, what, how they want to write about it. Um, the, the, the media pays for a lot of it, right? I mean, it pays for a lot of it, absolutely. And... Uh, so there is a, and, and that's an important relationship, right? I mean, it's important to the public to have some transparency about what's going on out there, to have this access to this information. It's something that we need to continue to do. Uh, I think at the same time as the, uh, as the sort of, uh, how do I want to say this? As, as I think in some ways that relationship has been a little bit bastardized. Uh, okay. And as the media has come to rely more on polling and report more on polling, uh, our relationship has actually grown distant. So what you've got now is, 
public polling that is being reported as simply two numbers, right? We call it horse race polling. Uh, And uh, and what we've gotten away from is any sort of analysis or context that goes with that type of of polling. And so I think the problem is not that there there should or shouldn't be public polling. There should be. Um, But we've got to, as a group, work more closely together so that we are accurately reporting on the data that's it's out there. So that, that's a big part of it. Now, uh, so, so by that you mean like basically there's an oversimplification of the poll results because, you know, news, newspapers, news uh, companies are kind of, they want news and that's the news. That's the simplistic way of covering it. And it's not always like making a, uh, I don't know. Well, okay. So, so take one step back. I, um, I haven't even talked about polling at all really in this, but like, I didn't know. I wasn't familiar with the term. I'd taken statistics and I'd taken like, you know, uh, stats for public policy for my master's or whatever, but I was not so familiar with the term cross tabs as you just throw it around in politics until I was like, wait, what are these cross tabs? So why don't you explain cross tabs for people and then talk about like what, what you think might be missing because no one's looking at the cross tabs. It's a great, that's a great point. And, and, and where I thought you were going also was going to be margin of error, right? Which is another concept. And so, yes. you know, when I say that we have to work more closely with the media, it's not to say that uh, it's being misunderstood, but sometimes there's just sort of like, we need to just, I think, have a hard reset on like, what is polling? What isn't it? <laughs> what can it do? What it can't. What is the margin of error, right? Like, and, and, and what is that? Right. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, just to sort of stay on that point for one second, the, polling is is a blunt instrument. It's at least more of a blunt instrument than it is a precision tool, right? Uh, because there is margin of error. Uh, and, you know, frankly, if if there was a way for us to be correct to the hundredth of a percent uh, every single time or, or you know, even the one percent uh, every time, then we wouldn't report a margin of error. There would be no need for it. And so, you know, uh, there's a lot of challenges with that, both in terms of understanding what it means for polling, uh, but also it becomes even more difficult when you have really close elections, right? Because a poll that says, you know, Joe Biden's winning 50 to 49, and then he loses the state 49 to 51 was well within the margin of error, but the result is different. And right. that can really sort of exacerbate the, you know, the notion that the polls were, were wrong. So let me, let me actually answer your question on the, on the cross steps. I mean, your, your point is exactly right. There is more to this data than simply, you know, the top line horse race number. Um, what I noticed is that like, when I looked for it, I couldn't find the methodology or the sample or who, you know, where they were, where they were, um, you know, extrapolating uh, because they didn't have enough uh, people who answered the survey of a certain, you know, demographic marker. Um, and so, you know, when I couldn't find that on most of the polls, granted, I didn't look that hard, right? I looked within a few clicks, but to me, that means, and actually, that kind of takes me to a, di- a different question of like, for people who, who don't know anything about polling, who don't know anything about statistics are just like, we see polls every four years and that's like all we got. So walk us through like, what's a poll? And if you're doing, if you're doing a national poll of it ends up being, what, how many voters did we have this time? What are we looking at? It's like. 150 to 160 million total. 150 to 160 million voters. And like most of the national polls I've seen, if I remember right, like they're looking at a thousand, right? Like a few thousand is kind of the, the high end of a sample. 
Right, and, and that's, that's really sort of where your margin of error comes in, right? You're essentially taking a snapshot that is representative, you know, you're, let's talk to a thousand people that are uh, in some way representative of this 150 million people that actually are going to vote. And within that, there, there are now a couple challenges, right? One is, uh, it requires some assumptions, right? Mm -hmm. Polls are, uh, to be very, polls are a snapshot in time. Uh, polls are not designed to predict the future. Uh, they are measuring a particular moment in time. And so things can change <laughs> over the course of time. And, uh, and so you, you have, you know, on the one hand, this, uh, we're sort of reporting on, okay, here's what is going to happen on election day based on information that may be, you know, in some cases weeks or months old. Now, it's a little different in a presidential election where you do have a lot of polling right up to the election. And clearly that wasn't all picking up uh, what was actually going on out there. Um, uh, secondly, it also requires assumptions, right? Polling does require assumptions that go in on the front end, right? And so this is kind of where one of the theories about what could have happened in this election was, were we wrong about turnout? Uh, and the answer seems to be yes, at least to some degree, right? We, we have to sort of predict, okay, what is an election gonna look like in terms of the you know, composition of men versus women, of the composition of, you know, by age. Uh, and probably most importantly, at least over the course of time, has been the composition by partisanship. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think the, one of, if not the most interesting thing coming out of this election was the sort of upending of the dogma that the more people who vote, the better Democrats do. Oh, yeah, that's a big, that was, I think, a, that's a huge, huge difference in what we, in what I think most of us could have predicted. And also, like, you know, it's very counterintuitive. I mean, I, I don't think most of us typically think of, and maybe they are, but like non-college educated white people, are they usually non-voters? Is it, is it, has Trump driven that much of a surge in typical non-voters that that has actually shown to be the case or what? I think we have to start from assumption that that has to be true in some measure. And I think where you're going with that is, uh, to me, what stands out is what is likely to both provide us the clearest answers to what happened. I think, the, well, let me step up. It's, it's most likely that some combination of things resulted in polls not being right on the mark this cycle. Um, but I think the most important thing to help explain it and that can help guide us uh, in terms of where we go uh, is I don't believe that this is a problem that is going to be easily solved either demographically or methodologically. Both of those things are important to, uh, to entertain, right? But we, you know, we talked about 2016, we tried to solve the, dem the problem demographically by increasing the number of non-college voters or white non-college voters in our polls. Um, that obviously didn't get us there. Uh, we have, you know, the polling industry is, we're undergoing some pretty significant shifts right now. I mean, one that we've been dealing with over the course of, well, really history, right? Uh, you know, as polling has gone from in-person interviewing to mail interviewing to landline telephones to cell phones and now online. Right. Um, so we're already dealing with this sort of massive shift and, and, and the move online has really afforded us uh, more ways to allow people to take our surveys. And that's a good thing. You can kind of go out and meet people more where they are, the people that are. Well, you want higher participation if possible. Right. Exactly. And we, and we, you know, we can see, for instance, that we will get people to take our surveys if we send them a text message as opposed to calling their cell phone and trying to get them to stay on the phone with us for 15 mm -hmm. minutes. So that, that is all that has been happening. Um, but it's, you know, we're, it is, we're in the middle of that shift. Uh, and like time. for clarity, 
the people who, I mean, what you're trying to get as a pollster is you're looking at, I think what we, we look at, you know, 13 minutes is kind of a, a fairly, it's, I, I mean, I just remember that as a length of poll time that we had. <laughs> um, but so, you know, 13 to 20 minutes for a lot of polls, right? And like, that's a long time to expect anyone to stay on the phone. I mean, that's, you know, many people when they're talking to their parents, there's no way they could stay on for 20 minutes. So like some random person who's not getting paid for this, who's like, I'm busy. And I, you know, they have to be, they're like, what's their reason for doing it at all? And it's because they believe in, they want their information, like they, they want to, to make sure that their viewpoint is shared or like they, f- they think it's important for re- one reason or another. And so that leaves out a lot of people who don't or who don't care. Right. And absolutely. And, and that's, I think a really good point sort of getting into this, like, okay, we've thought about this demographically. We thought about this methodologically, but now there's some other stuff happening. Right. And so for instance, the, the point that you just raised is, is a person who stays on the phone with a pollster for 20 minutes, even though they may have all the same demographics as someone who won't, are, are those people the same? Uh, right. Or is someone who's willing to do a poll for 20 minutes a different type of person? And therefore we are systematically excluding someone who looks and sounds and acts like that person, but has a, uh, but is, uh, is going to be precluded from taking that survey. And that is sort of, I think, where a lot of the conversation has gone in the last we had two weeks now. Um, and I think where there's really a lot of... Uh, latitude for exploration is, you know, what, ha- so if we, if we just increased our percentage of white non-college voters and that didn't work, then what else is going on here? Right. The answer number one could be the point that we were talking about on turnout. Maybe, maybe it wasn't high enough. Maybe Trump does have something unique that, that created even more voters out of people who are unlikely to be voters without. And we won't know that for a little while. Right. That's hard. To, and, and frankly, that's, going to be something that we're going to have to wrestle with as an industry in 2022 and 2024. And are these voters that are going to show up again in a midterm, you know, the, tw- right. the polls is it in 2018. Is it a non-Trump thing? Is it like, uh, yeah. Right. I, you know, you know, especially if you bring a pandemic in as a obvious, like uh, outlier effect, <laughs> then, then it's, it's kind of hard to tell what's. Yeah. yeah these, no, these were, these were major uh, influences on this election. Right. Like, um, like I was just talking to somebody today who was, I was like, did you knock any doors during your reelection? This is a person who knocked tons for, you know, for 2018, just like we did. And they were like, no, she, she's like, I couldn't deal with it. If one of my volunteers, and she's like, you know, who are, who are volunteers? They're like older ladies. And if one of them got COVID because of door knocking and died, like I'm not ready to kill my volunteers. And that's a fair statement. You know, uh, there's, I think that there's, there's stuff that it, it would have been great if we'd been able to do, but also like going from hundreds of thousands of doors knocked in each of these districts to zero when the Republicans were still door knocking and in fact even ramped up their efforts. That's a pretty significant difference among the people, the, the lower propensity voters, the people who are less likely to vote anyway, that are not, that are, that are the ones that are most likely to see the, the change in their voting patterns if you do have that face-to-face door knocking, Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, yeah, the way we campaign was fundamentally altered. And, and, and that's another thing that has been changing over, over time, right? You know, we talked about trying to reach people in a poll uh, through online communication channels. I mean, we're also trying to adjust to that as campaign professionals about, you yeah. know, how do you effectively use digital media and social media uh, relative to 
uh, more traditional forms of media that we do understand better, that we do have more, uh, you know, or at least a longer track record of, of, of data uh, to point to. So there are all these things that were sort of swirling around. And I think one of the things, this is kind of what we were saying, you know, when we talked about the type of person who's going to take a poll uh, in terms of staying on the phone for a long period of time, um, that's something we've always wrestled with, right? Is, you know, we've always known that at some point, you just get people who are going to say, I'll do this for some reason, or I'm absolutely not going to do it. Um, and that could reflect civic engagement. Uh, and civic engagement could reflect both your likelihood to turn out and who you're going to vote for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what, what we really have to consider uh, in this election is sort of this, you know, this big shift on the axis on which people are making their voting decisions these days, right? It was, it was well, what I mean is, we, we spent a long time correlating vote to things like partisanship, right? And it still, of course, is very correlated to, to partisanship. Uh, but Donald Trump, you know, I mean, say what you want about him, but he is a cultural phenomenon who has created new axes. Uh, and, and frankly- Much created, to our chagrin, but like, it's true. Right, well, and, you know, and maybe, and you know, the way those have rebalanced is important, right? So if, you know, if, if this is not, like we talk about, we talk about education, right? We know- over the course of the Trump era, uh, there's been a realignment along the lines of education with college voters becoming much more democratic, non-college voters becoming more Republican. Um, and so he's sort of created these demographic shifts. Um, at the same time, you know, I mean, he's also created an identity, right? Being a Trump voter has become an identity for people. It's almost a demographic in and of itself. And that notion of worldview becomes very important, both in terms of understanding the way people are voting, uh, but also in terms of understanding how we get these polls right. Because one of the theories that's been put forth that I frankly put a lot of stock in uh, is uh, polls are people who have lower social trust, lower trust in social institutions are less likely to engage, uh, are also going to be less likely to respond to a survey. That seems like a perfectly reasonable (laughs) argument. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's one that tracks, right? Like if you think the government's after you or you think the man's after you or you don't want to share your, I mean, yeah, for sure. Like, why would you give all this information to a pollster? Right. And those are the people that we know are going to be by and large Donald Trump supporters. Right. So and by the way, the pollsters, like you don't really disclose when, when polls are happening, they don't really disclose what it's for, right? Like if it's on behalf of a candidate or if it's on behalf of a you know, party. I mean, I guess maybe if it's the New York Times Siena poll, like maybe you'd say that. But I think for a lot of them, it probably it doesn't say that at all. So people are extra. Uh, I would imagine some people at least are 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 extra suspicious of who or what is asking. I, I think that's right. You know, and and the requirements for disclosure and transparency vary by state. I mean, generally in our industry, more transparency is better. You, know, you shouldn't have to be clicking multiple times to try to find the methodology statement for a poll. But, but what, you're, what you just said is absolutely correct, uh, that you know, there aren't really necessarily standards for deep disclosure in a one-on-one interview setting with a, with a respondent. You know, the, other, the other side of that coin is true also, right? Which is, if you say, I'm calling on behalf of the New York Times or someone, then you're going to, you could potentially bias your response pool in another direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there are a lot of these factors, but I, I think if, if we believe that part of our challenge, at least part of our challenge, if not the lion's share of it is that we were systematically underrepresenting these people with low social trust, then how do you solve for that? Right. right. Because like, that's a, 
that's a pretty intractable problem. When right. It's not as easy as just going out and saying, well, we'll get more of them in our sample because we are not getting them in our sample. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we have to come up with some strategies for understanding that. And, and I'm going back to this conversation about like, you know, how do people make their voting decisions and what access are they making their voting decisions on now? You know, I mean, this concept of sort of worldview, I don't want to say ideology because it's not conservative and liberal. It's, it's almost sort of worldview. And we've kind of looked at this internally in our firm as, uh, you know, you've got a set of people who are collectivists, uh, who've sort of been, you know, for the social good, tend to be Democrats. Uh, you've got your sort of individualists who approach life from the standpoint of, you know. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Exactly. Um, and those were sort of the two nodes that we understood for a long time. Um, I think what Trump has given rise to is is really sort of a third node that makes this less two-dimensional, um, which we sort of re- refer to as either uh, relativists or people with a zero-sum orientation, right? Which is essentially people who say, when I you win at my expense, right? There's only so much to go around and when things get taken so from me. So it is people with a zero sum orientation. Correct. Yeah. So like of, if, if so-and-so's college debt is forgiven, then I'm fucked. Right. It could, it could, that's, it's so perfect. It could be, it could be an economic uh, zero sum game or, or it can be cultural, right? It can be the more rights that other people have, the more my, my rights are impeded upon. Okay. Um, and this has become uh really an identity and, and frankly there, there are voters from both sides of the kind of traditional uh, uh, ideological spectrum in this, right? You've sort of got your, clearly you've got your Donald Trump supporters on one side, the sort of low social trust. Um, but then you've also got, you know, you've got your Bernie Sanders type supporters who are sort of seeing the world the same way, but perhaps in the opposite direction from a lot of yeah. what these Trump voters are saying. So a big part of the answer has to lie in there. And this also explains how you can just increase your number of you know, white non-college voters without solving the problem, because you might not be getting the right white non-college voters in right. your survey. Um, and, and to me, that's really, I think we need to take a very hard look at that and start thinking about things like worldview as, as a demographic. Uh, Interesting. And the challenge in it, of course, is, you know, we know from voter file information from lots of other sources that from census, I mean, we, we can get pretty close to knowing, you know, how many people from which age core cohort are going to turn out yeah. in election, how many people, you know, by ethnicity, how many people by gender, yeah. these types of things. Um, we don't know the answers to some of these other things and <laughs> God bless you. Um, <laughs> so not only do we not have hard government data to, to um, pinpoint this to, but like we were talking before, it might change. We don't know if this is going to hold in 2022 when Trump's not on the ballot in 2024, if he is or if he isn't. You know, but if you go back and we talked a little bit about 2018, this was not a story in 2018. Now, partly that's because, uh, to your point, like we sort of, the public at large sees polls every four years, not every two years. Um, part of it is you're going to have far fewer public polls in a year like 2018. Uh, and that's something that we also have to consider when we sort of think about what happened in this election, right? What gets reported and what gets inputted into the, uh, you know, the polling averages that are out there. The 538s and so on. Right, exactly. And, you know, those are, those are some of the polls, right? Those are the polls that are publicly available that they've got access to. Uh, but all these campaigns are polling. Uh, right. And you might have a whole other set of information there. Now, we'll come back to that because that's the first question <laughs> that you asked here is, uh, you know, one thing that seems clear, if you look at the national data, 
we're sort of tracking toward, uh, depending on which polling average you use, like if you kind of look at uh, the real clear pol politics polling average and the 538 polling average, the polls basically showed Biden winning the national vote by seven to eight points. Right. Uh, he's currently winning it by about three and a half. You know, when all these votes get counted, let's say he's, he's going to end up with a four point margin. I mean, at the end of the day, then that's within the margin of error. It's, it's, and historically, it's not even that big of a quote unquote miss. You know, if you look back, Nate Silver had a chart. Uh, he went back and recalculated what would have been the polling averages going all the way back to 1972. And <laughs> the average error of the last, does that make them, you know, almost 50 years, uh, is something around two and a half points in terms of the margin being off. If you go back to just the year 2000, it's about the same, about 2.3 percentage points uh, average year over year. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately a miss of three to four points is pretty standard. Uh, yeah. And again, we then have to question like, what do we mean by miss? <laughs> because right. uh, you know, one, one thing is the margin of error is not calculated on the margin of the vote. A margin of error is applied to an individual data point or an individual number, right? So if, uh, if Joe Biden has 50% of the vote and the margin of error is three points, his true vote is going to be somewhere between 47 and 53%, uh, as opposed to, you know, the margin of error being applied to just the margin overall. So it's even bigger than it looks there. Right. Uh, and again, so, so this is sort of part of like what we have to reestablish is a poll can tell us more or less where is a race, right? If you were looking to a poll to tell you the election is going to be 51.1 to should, I should have made this easier myself, 51 to 49 on election day. Um, you know, you're going to be disappointed more often than not. But right. usually a poll, an election that ends up 51 to 49, uh, your polling is usually going to say, this is probably going to be a pretty close race in right. your direct. Yeah, right? right. That's what you know. You're like, okay, we're polling slightly up, but we're polling within the margin of error, which means it's not safe. It's, and, exactly. Yeah. Um, but if you're so, polling outside the margin of error and you think you're safe, and then the, suddenly the margin of error becomes much bigger than what you thought, then that's, that's where people have run into problems this cycle. And, exactly, and, and, and you're exactly, and so this is where uh, I'll stop talking about the fact that polls weren't as wrong as everybody thinks, uh, and we can move into, but yes, some of them were clearly wrong. You've got examples at the national level or the federal level, like Wisconsin, um, and you know, you've, got, you've clearly got errors in, in these down-ballot races, uh, where there was a big gap that polling wasn't picking up between what was going to happen at the top of the ticket and what was happening down ballot. Uh, there's, there are a lot of things that you could use to explain that, right? Um, I think maybe the most interesting one is, so what this clearly means is you, you had a, one of a few things happening, right? You had people who were voting for Biden and then voting Republican down ballot. Uh, you had people who were uh, voting for Biden and not voting down ballot. Uh, so there, there are a number of ways to sort of explain how you get that kind of drop off. Uh, it was clearly not something the polls were picking up. Uh, in fact, there were a lot of polls at the House level that were actually had the opposite trend. You know, the, what do you mean? With somebody running for Congress who was actually running ahead of Biden. Oh, uh, right. District. Um, and so... There are a lot of things to, you know, one, we don't actually know that second part is true or not because we don't necessarily know the results by congressional district in all of the states yet. Um, right. But one of the things we have to consider is this debate that's happening in Washington about what were Democrats telling people in this election and what were they hearing? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is going to take us outside of the, the context of polling, but 
this conversation, whatever you believe, uh, it is an important one for us to have. Uh, and I think one of the things that we have to at least uh, accept as a possibility is that, you know, people voted one way in the race for president uh, based on a set of information that everybody kind of had. Uh, and they voted a very different way down ballot where they kind of said, okay, I understand the difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Uh, I understand the difference between Democrats and Republicans in a different way. Right. right. And right. Uh, it was one thing if you didn't think the Democrats were offering much, uh, but you also didn't like Donald Trump, it was easy to vote the top of the ticket that way. If you didn't think the Democrats were offering much, and you didn't really know as much about the Republican candidate running for Congress in your district, that might lead you to a different conclusion. It also- Yeah, and I mean, if Biden's whole argument the entire time was pulling from decline to states or independence and, you know, the, the, the anti-Trump Republican, the Lincoln Project Republican, like, that makes perfect sense that they would keep a Republican Congress because they're, you know, they're not really Democrats and we we weren't really pulling, we were pulling them away because they were voting against Trump, not because they were voting for anything. And that's fine for a congressional, I mean, sorry for, for, you know, this particular presidential race, but it's, it doesn't work down ballot, especially when I think there was a, I mean, look, the, the, the GOP, because they have no rules for themselves, like is able to hammer us so much better than we are. They're able to use racist attacks. They're able to use sexist attacks. They're able to use like freaking lies, just straight up lies and go unchecked because they don't really care. They just don't have ethics around any of it. And we do. And I can't actually see that changing because then it wouldn't be, you know, the party that I wanted to be or that we, we make ourselves out to be. But it means that, like, they're going to be better at labeling every single Democrat and a defund the police person or every single Democrat and a socialist or, you know, whatever fear mongering. I mean, it used to be it was just as recent as 2016 that the the menace, the Democratic menace was Nancy Pelosi, you know, in my own in my own race in 2018. Like, that's what they used against us this time. They weren't using Nancy because they had they had a different one and they had, you know, this the terrify people about protests and stuff like that. But that means that, you know. There's, there's no, like, we don't have that counter narrative, right? They've got the narrative. This is who they are. Be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. And all we had was the Trump part and people were like, fine, you're right. I don't care. I mean, I don't like Trump. I'm going to vote against Trump, but they didn't understand why, why DC Republicans or Washington, you know, congressional Republicans are just as bad or are, you know, just as dangerous or, or that our policies are, are in fact just better. Right. Yeah. That last point is really important is, you know, look, the reality of the situation is it is not hard for someone to label you a socialist when you're not offering anything to counter that narrative. Uh, And, you know, we did it in your race, right? I mean, we knew that establishing you as a different type of Democrat as something that most people would say, like, huh, I don't usually hear that from Democrats. Right. But I believe it about Katie Hill uh, was one thing that that you could really use to separate yourself from this sort of national narrative. And we have to consider the fact that whatever that national narrative is out there right now is not good for us. Uh, And so. And I would argue that they've made it that way forever. Right. I mean, it's been about the, the, the national narrative for Democrats has never been good. Like since at least in my adult life and, and, and probably not much before that either. It was like, okay, you'll, you'll get some kind of a turnaround, but I, I don't feel like it was ever because people were like, in general, were like, go Democrats. You know what I mean? I, f- I feel like that just wasn't, 
that wasn't what I grew up with. That's not what, you know, the community I grew up in was like, and maybe it's different in different places, but I don't think that, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's something that's been lacking for a very long time. And when you have, when you have a party or a set of ideals that is entirely allowing you to be an anti, which is what, which is what the Republican party is. They're just whatever we're not They're They're capitalizing on whatever the fears are. Then that leaves so much room for them to define you um, where you, you, you don't have as much opportunity. So, but you got to figure out how. Have to. Yeah. We have to be selling something to somebody <laughs> that they want to so buy. So what worked? What did in, in the races that you did this, this time, the ones, well, f- first of all, how, what was your track record like across the country? <laughs> how did you guys do? Uh, you know, look, I, so there's, there's something interesting about the regionality of the, you know, again, the, the misses here that, um, you know, if, even if you look at the national data, I will answer your question, not just talk around it, but, okay. um, but you know, even if you look at the national data, the, the, the level of the miss in Ohio and Wisconsin was very different from the miss in Pennsylvania, right? And in Pennsylvania, the miss was more or less non-existent. Um, so you have these differences from state to state, region to region. Um, you know, most of our work happens to be in the, in the American West, uh, so the Western U.S. And, uh, you know, you've had states out here that more or less performed like they were expected to. I mean, Nevada and Arizona are probably a little closer than most polls had them. Um, but, you know, states like Colorado, California, uh, you know, overall the polling generally <laughs> reflected what we saw right. uh, on election night. And, um, you know, I, there's, there's another, this is, you know, a good example of kind of how we have to move beyond just the horse race and also understand, you know, what happens in places like this, like a state like Montana's, uh, you know, a lot of polling showed that race close and, you know, Candidly, so did ours. Although we actually pulled in four of the races there, um, they had a lot closer. No, there were four races in Montana. Yeah, president, <laughs> senate, governor. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, our polling had these races closer than they ended up. Uh, yeah. It was, you know, there's nothing, like, and, and it was, you know, weeks before the election, so some things may have changed. Uh, but you know, you also have a, a state like Montana, historically Republican. Uh, when you do have undecided voters, those are places where they'll break. Tie, yeah, tied on going into an election isn't necessarily a great place to be as a Democrat. And so right. these things can, can move. Um, so I think that's kind of what I mean by saying, like, you know, we have to just get away from saying, okay, because a race is 45-45 today, I mean, that doesn't mean it's going to end up 50-50 on right. election. Right. Um, and, you know, I, look, I mean, I think in terms of what worked and uh, what people bought uh, in terms of candidates, I think it's a lot of what you and I talked about from the beginning of this, right? I mean, I'm not sure, I'm not all that sure how much things matter to voters beyond their ability to, or a candidate's ability to relate and empathize uh, and be authentic mm-hmm. to them, mm-hmm. right? And I find in the races where, uh, where our candidates performed really well, we had candidates who, you know, sort of Did. were not seen as politicians, whatever they were saying. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, I mean, I think a lot of voters are willing to say, I will put aside a little bit of my ideology. Obviously, we've got hardcore extremes that are a lot of the country, but you know, there are a lot of voters who say, I, I'll make compromises. I'll put aside this part of my ideology. I'll sort of think about what fits here for someone that is, uh, gives me some certitude. And well, I, one, of the, one of the favorite sayings you hear from independents or people who, who, who identify as such is, I vote for the person, not the party. 
And I think that a lot of people have internalized that enough to the point where, you know, I mean, in our district, over 30% of people were like somewhere in the range of, of independent, then, you know, that's, an, that's certainly enough to break one way or the other. If you're like, I'll vote, I'll, I'll vote for the person, not the party. But if you don't have an identification of the person and you only have what you see identified for the party nationally, then, you know, it's, it's hard to make that distinction. And, and those convictions have to be real and authentic. Yeah. Because right? it's like if you're if you're switching or if you're saying something that's not just not going to be believable, uh, you know you'll remember this from the focus groups we did in your campaign was you know, showing people those videos of you. Refre- refresh people who haven't who don't know about this. Okay, I want to make sure you're okay with me. Uh, oh, it's fine. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I mean, we showed videos in those focus groups of you talking to the camera, and it was just you. It was a you know it was a setting where we said, okay, just ask you a question, talk about this, and I think I can remember sitting in those focus groups and. Uh, and listen to people say, they would use comments like, oh, she sounds like me, or she sounds like my neighbor, or she understands the things that I'm going through. They weren't talking about whatever policy you were talking about. That's not what was coming through to them. What was coming through to them was, she sounds like someone who understands me and who then, therefore I can fight, I can trust, I can count on to fight for me. And uh, the issues became less relevant. Your party label became less relevant. And it became pretty clear at that point that, you know, they were looking for someone who just kind of like, could got be that. part of their, their community um, and got that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I think that is, that has remained very true. The other thing that I think is really interesting coming out of this election is we saw several successful candidates, uh, um, at least at the local level, you know, my, I guess my uh, experience with this is, is limited geographically to some degree, but you know, in some of these races in California, uh, you saw candidates win, with a message uh, in democratic areas that was much more sort of conciliatory, that was um, looking for compromise and bringing people together and sort of getting things done. And I look at candidates like a Sarah Jacobs uh, or a Todd Gloria in San Diego who, who had messages that really said, we can be progressive while also working together and uh, we can get things done. And so it's not, it's not this message of compromise right because we always know we know how that always ends up everybody says they want compromise until no one actually wants it, yeah. and compromising yeah. um but what i thought worked well in this election was a message that said that sort of pushed off of washington pushed off the politicians and the bickering and this division and chaos and all this stuff that people are so sick of um and that frankly donald trump defined american politics on yeah. uh it sort of pushed off that and said you know what you can still be a progressive. You can still uh, push democratic policies and agenda and an agenda uh, without creating division and, and war. And we can actually, uh, we can work together and get things done and listen to the other side. And that is how we'll get progress. Well, but just, I mean, for context, like those were both D on D, right? Like those, Correct. those were, so, the, so in California, we've got the open primary and, and I'm sorry, yeah, we've got the open primary and that means to the top two, in the final um, November election. And uh, so you end up having somebody like Sarah Jacobs, who, you know, doesn't necessarily need Republican votes, but is definitely like Republican votes in a top two in a district like hers, you know, are going to matter, right? It's going to, it doesn't change her viewpoints. It just changes what you emphasize. And I think that's the case with anything, right? Like what message, what messaging points are the most um, effective in your particular community? And when you know that you're up against another D, and you want to define yourself differently as not being partisan because that does appeal to your indies and your, and your, um, I don't know, no longer identified Republicans. Um, 
I mean, shit, I would have done the same thing, you know, focus on small businesses, focus on, doesn't mean you don't believe in Medicare for all, but you're not talking about it. <laughs> or, or, you know, or, or you are and you're framing it in a way that is, I think what we found in these races is it's not anathema to a lot yeah. of the progressive vote. And so, and there, that's because your point is exactly right. I mean, you're right. Those, those two races were, were different in that way, but it also might tell us something for how you might run a race against a Republican if we know that, you know, there's a message for Democrats that doesn't say I'm not a progressive, or I'm not going to pursue progressive ideals or values, uh, but that there's just a different way of doing it that might be more effective in actually getting some of these things done. So I just today pulled up my, I forget why, it, but and apparently it still exists, but the Katie Hill for Congress website. And um, it, I looked at the like taglines that we had on there and it was, it was very much along that. It was ending politics as usual, defending our values and securing our future. And I'm like, if you read that, you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily know. And it's still in purple. Like you wouldn't necessarily know what party it is. And I think that I would have, I would have run a very similar reelection campaign. It would have been harder because I, you know, would then have all the votes associated with the party and I would have Nancy Pelosi pictures and I would have AOC pictures and they would have been running the ad saying she's full of it. She's gone to Washington and she's done all these things. But, um, but I think nonetheless, like the, the message still would have been like, this isn't about party politics. This is about who cares about you and your community. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, uh, I'm laughing sort of at the words that we chose in some of those taglines. <laughs> I know, because you basically sound, we, I mean, I remember being very intentional about that, like being like, look, we got to, we should steal their words. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, values and secure, and I mean, these are, some of what has to be examined, you, you raised this before, and obviously this is at the center of the discussion within the party, but is, you know, was the party defined on some of those uh, cultural either issues or words in a different way in 2020 than it was in 2018, mm-hmm. or at least were people paying attention in a different way, or were the people that care about that kind of thing uh, that didn't vote in the midterm, are those the types of voters that were energized by by Donald Trump, right? So it's right. You know, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing where a Democrat like Katie Hill in 2018 could very credibly run on the notion of security and values uh, when we then had a whole defund the police campaign that, you know. Yeah, I mean, I very what, much think about like how I would have, because as that started to hype up, that was when it, it was right around when the Mike Garcia special election was. And, and I was thinking about like this defund the police stuff in a district like mine that was full of cops and people related to cops, including myself, like that's a tough, that's a tough one to try and figure out how you're going to grapple with it. And, you know, I, I, so I had to think about like what I would do in that case. And, and the fact that I had, uh, you know, a, a dad who was actively in law enforcement, who's still, I mean, he retires next week, which I'm very happy for. Um, but he's, but like, that would have helped that, you know, that that would have been in every one of my freaking ads. My dad's a police officer. I believe in reforming the criminal justice system or I, you know, we, justice has to apply to everybody, but we also need to protect our communities. Like you can just, the, the ads write themselves. If you're trying to counter the narrative, you just have to have the, the resources to put behind it. No, and, and the credibility to make it work, right? right. I mean, you know, that, that, that's a big part of this is, you know, candidates that have the credibility and can stand behind the things that they say and present it authentically in a way that, you know, leads people to conclude that person is for me. You know, I mean, that's a, that is a big, big part of this. Right, right. Yeah. And we don't, we're not going to have the data on what exactly was different for each of those races, you know, how much of it was 
how much of it was because of a Trump surge, a Trump voter surge that we weren't necessarily expecting how much of it. And, Cause I gotta be honest, I was expecting Trump voter suppression. Like I really thought that he was with all of his efforts, it was going to, it was going to have the opposite effect and have, you know, a lot of his people stay home and especially people who just didn't, who, who didn't like him, but didn't want to vote for a D like that they would just stay home. So I was, I was not expecting, um, you know, the, the, it, it, it also is like depressing to think about how good his turnout was, but, um, but regardless, like, I think that that's, that that's a calculation. Like that's one of the many calculations that has to come into the next time around. Well, it fits with that whole notion of identity, right? I mean, this, he has created an identity uh, and people wanted to turn out for that. I, I think it'll be the mid, the 2022 midterms will be really an interesting sort of test of a lot of this. Oh, um, and I think yeah. the conventional wisdom would be that Democrats are going to lose in 2022, mm-hmm. right? For based on historical trends in midterm elections, based on what we think happened here. But if you take the turnout dynamic into account, if those voters are voting for Donald Trump, not necessarily for a Republican party, it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that Democrats no. are going to lose a lot of seats in 2022. Yeah, I guarantee you. And I think a lot of people in these frontline districts had Trump voters who voted for them and like probably both times. So, um, yeah. Okay. Let's do rapid since we're, we're, we're cutting in on or running out of time. Let's talk about like just rapid fire answers to things is, so is it true when people say that polls were off for two presidential elections in a row? You're asking me to... Just one like, you know would you say terrible. true or false or true with a qualifier or... <laughs> I'm laughing because how long have you known me? When was the last time you knew me to talk in anything? I know. I know. That's why, that's why I, thought, <laughs> I didn't know if anyone else would get how funny it is to try and get you to answer short <laughs> answers, but... <laughs> A filibuster for me. Yeah, uh, so, so for so, for context, Drew will often say, "I have too much to say. I'm going to get back to you," and then he'll send a very long email about it. So that's <laughs> the, the old joke is there's no such thing as a one-handed pollster because everything is on the one hand, but on the right. other. Right. Yeah. No, that's uh, good. That's a good. <laughs> so, I, look, I, to, to answer that one succinctly, though, I, it is it is at least partially true. Like there there were some polling was right. Uh, some polling was needs to be fixed. Uh, I would say that the notion that the polling is dead to me is absolutely false. Okay, I agree. Um, is Trump hard to poll? Are Trump voters hard to poll? True or false? Or yes or no? Or whatever. True, and it strikes me as the biggest challenge and most important thing for us to figure out. Okay. Um, is polling increasingly difficult with conspiracy beliefs like QAnon? Like, do you feel, feel like people who believe in that are more institutionally distrustful and yeah. Yeah. I think that's the connection. I think, yes, I think it is likely that those types of theories lead to more social distrust, which leads to, uh, makes, makes it harder to get those people into our surveys. So by what point would you say that pollsters will have the data that they need and have kind of a theory of the case moving into the next election cycle, 22? Like when, when do you think that the reckoning will have been solid enough? I I think realistically, I mean, we got to count the votes. We got to update voter files. We have to aggregate information and we have to have the conversation. So, I mean, we're talking something on the order of weeks to months, not days. Yeah. I was thinking more like, is it going to happen, you know, before June or is it going to be? I mean, I think, I think 
yeah, no, I think this should be a, a conversation that's really sort of ramped up in the first half of next year so that we've at least got some, because we also need time to test these theories before right. we get into to 2022. Totally. Um, what, so do you think the future of polling is less than it was before? Do you think it's just different? Do you think it's, you know, I don't know. Do you think that the, the lack of trust for it is going to be a problem? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think it's certainly something we have to address. I don't think the future is any, uh, I don't think that we should assume that we should poll less often because of the results of this election or the 2016 election or the two combined. Um, I do think that, you know, it is our duty as an industry to constantly reimagine, rethink uh, and improve the way that we're, that we're doing this. But, you know, there's also a big difference between, uh, there's two things. One is a big difference between polling in a presidential election or any election versus in organizations, companies, corporate, everybody's still needs information to make right. decisions. So, um, and there are big distinctions in terms of uh, the way that those two, uh, those two types of polling are, are conducted. Um, and I had a second point, but this is supposed to be rapid fire and I forgot it. I, yeah, uh, that happens to me a lot. Um, I think it was, so the companies are going to keep using them, like private companies are going to keep using them and it, the results or the, you know, possible kind of misses in 16 and 20 were, um, are not going to impact the need to still count on future polls. Oh, and that was my second point too, is, is that, uh, we also, we really need to have a national conversation though about the way that we are interpreting and using the information coming out of these polls, because it is important to realize like, yes, some of the polling was wrong and there's accountability required for that, but not all of the polling was wrong. Right. Uh, and so we just, we just need, if we can recalibrate there and sort of understand polls for what they are and what they aren't, then I think we can all realize, hey, these are still a really valuable thing and that we're still valuable in, in 2020. Well, and when you have an entire Democratic side that is upset about their losses and looking for somebody to blame, like, it's going to be on the pollsters, you know what I mean? Somebody's like, got to take the blame. Yeah, yeah. And you guys, and, no one knows your names, like, you're super <laughs> behind the radar, they can make you take the fall and then pay you and hire you again anyway. <laughs> That's suppose that's a problem. deal I'd be willing to take. <laughs> um, okay, then last thing, what do you think went wrong in Florida or in areas where, like, how did, how did all the Latinos get missed in terms of the margin of performance there? Yeah, you know, and this is an interesting one because this is something that polling was picking up on, right? I mean, there was plenty of post, uh, pre-election uh, polls, and this is actually, I think, a place where the reporting, the reporting was really good, right, on what's going on with Latino voters. The polls were consistently picking up underperformance uh, among uh, Latino population, in particular Latino men as opposed to Latina women. Now, polls, you'll remember this from your race. I mean, polls often will undercount the Latino vote for Democrats. Yeah. Um, but in this case, it was, it was different. It was clearly gender-based, and it was something that was, that was, uh, that was happening basically across the country. Um, you know, I'm not an expert on Latino voters in a way that would give me the authority to, to talk about why, but I can say, you know, if you look at a place like Miami-Dade, take ethnicity out of it, but just, you know, again, if, if your opponent is calling you a socialist and you are either defined by or at least not pushing back on the parts of your party that are in fact socialist, then it becomes a pretty believable case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that's probably only one part of that answer. Um, but I did, but that's clearly part of the, the miss. And then I think the second part is, you know, you have to look at some of these places where there was underperformance um, and just sort of figure out, going back to the question of like, what type of 
white non-college voter were we getting in these surveys and how is that different you know how can how can the polls be so right in places like colorado uh you know in places like pennsylvania and and off in other places and so what's happening in these states what's sort of the difference between those those types of voters that was causing some of that if the polling in florida was off it certainly wasn't perfect um but it was again one of those states where the poll showed a slight biden lead and the results showed a slight biden loss Right. And, you know, if we're talking about this poll being Biden polling at 60 and getting 55, that's a lot different from Biden polling at 50 and getting 46. So, yeah. um, so that's part of it as well in a place like Florida. So in your closing, what's, what's, your, what's your, your closing sentence in defense of polling? Yeah, I, I mean, I, look, my, my defense is this is an industry where we've always had to adapt to social change. We are in a period of major social and political change. Uh, there is some accountability required for what happened in this election, but it's also not the entire story. And m- most of the polling actually uh, was probably pretty good uh, and at least gave us uh, a pretty clear indication of what the general contours of a race were. Um, and, you know, and, and as you know, we use this type of research, this type of opinion research for uh, understanding people's theories, their beliefs, and, and how you sort of calibrate your messaging message testing things that go beyond just the horse race so there's there's a whole range of uses for polling you don't have a you don't have a 20 minute poll because you're just asking are you going to support biden or trump it's a 20 minute poll because there's a lot more behind it and that's where a lot of the value comes in right like i just realized we never explained what cross tabs are can you just give (laughs) i I will i just to finish that thought though i do think what i do think that we owe people voters media the general public is to really sort of think about what we can be doing better, how we can integrate polling. If polling is a blunt instrument and not the type of precise instrument that people are demanding, then what can we do to get closer to that type of precision? What mm-hmm. types of you know, analytics can we use? How can we work more closely with, um, you know, with sort of the, the data science community? Uh, what type of experiments can we be using? Uh, what type of questions can we be asked? So there, there's a, that is, to me, what we owe people coming out of this election that answers to those questions and continue to move toward getting these things more right. Right. Like, is it a, is it something that we should be asking about in polls? Like, do you like Cheetos? And then that's a higher indicator of something. I just so made up Cheetos, but then I realized that that's kind of like Trump. So I don't know. <laughs> um, but, but actually that's, I think the perfect description of it. I, I think part of the answer to this is in not assuming that all politics is about partisanship or about politics mm-hmm. and understanding how people's just worldview and their beliefs factor into the political decisions that they're making. So yes, may or may not be about Cheetos, but there's definitely a set of things that we need to start asking about uh, that we haven't even really thought of of what those are yet. Right. Well, I know that, you know, with her time and, and for other things, like polling's not going away and I definitely still thought it was incredibly valuable. Oh wait, cross tabs. Still haven't answered that. Yeah. Just the one <laughs> sentence. I would keep filibustering until we don't have to. No. So cross tabs, <laughs> yeah. So basically what you have, you know, you have your data that gets shown on the TVs, Biden 49, Trump 46. Uh, and that's what we call top line data. That includes everybody in the sample. It's sort of the aggregate representative sample. Cross tabs mean within that, uh, within that, say a thousand person national sample, uh, we can look at Democrats, independents, Republicans. We can look at people under 50 and over 50. We can look at, you know, all sorts of different demographic subgroups. We can also look at, you know, this, the way it comes back to what you were just talking about is we can ask these sort of 
philosophical questions or worldview questions and run those as crosstabs. So we can look and say, okay, people who believe that there are plenty of rights to go around for everybody support Democrats by X amount and people who believe that their rights come at the expense of somebody else's uh, support Republicans by Y amount. So crosstabs will enable us to sort of take cross sections, different demographic subgroups um, or any subgroup and, uh, and understand what the data is saying uh, underneath the surface. What are they, why are they called crosstabs? Because of Excel? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, essentially, there, there are two data points crossing, right? So right. crossing Katie Hill voters by, you know, independence. Okay. Um, and so it's cross-tabulated data. Tabulated. Okay. Okay. Yes. Well, I just thought it was about tabs in an Excel spreadsheet, but, you know, that's fine. Um, okay. Well, thank you very much. Anything else you want to say before we go? No, but thank you very much for having me. <laughs> I, I, I should say thank you for not making this too difficult. I mean, this is not a not an easy subject right now, so oh. just fun conversation. Good, I'm glad. I had fun too. Well, thank you. Thanks, Katie. I'll talk to we'll you talk soon. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Okay. Well, thank you so much again to Drew, my amazing pollster, um, and Data Genius. Thanks for you all tuning in and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back soon.